Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark 11, verses 27 through the end of that chapter. God's word from the New Testament, Mark 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let us pray. So what do you need to make it official? Well, there's letterhead and a website. You may need a treasurer to sign the checks and send out the monies. A board or a boss gives the approval. The designated person has to communicate the formal letter. In short, an official act requires people with credentials. Badges, licenses, and certifications are needed, and then the appointed officers have to act officially on behalf of the institution. If a random person tried to do it, or if the wrong officer did it, it wouldn't count. No can do. Well, this is very much the issue before our Lord. For he has been moving things around, rearranging the furniture in the temple, but who said he could do such things? What credentials did Jesus have to act officially in the temple? Well, the authorities very much want to know, which our Lord uses to call us to a humble faith in his effective authority. So it's still the third day. Our Lord's pattern of entering Jerusalem and the temple by day and then exiting by night to lodge in Bethany has been going on for three parallel days. He cursed the fig on the morning of day two and then went in the temple to toss things around. So on the dawn of this third day, Jesus bumped into the withered fig and gave some clarifying instruction on it. And now he finishes the pattern by heading into the city and the temple where he is calmly walking around. No violent outrage as the previous day, just keeping to himself. Yet the powers that be are not about to let Jesus have his quiet time. The priests, the scribes, and the elders all come up to our Lord. But who exactly are these folk? What offices do they hold? Well, these office bearers are all legal and lawful, instituted by God in the Mosaic Law. There's no man-made bureaucracy here. For the priests belong to the descendants of Aaron with authority over the holy. The holy oil has been poured over their heads and ran down on their lofty beards. The scribes 
Well, these are the heirs of Ezra, well-trained and proven masters in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. And the elders, these are the lay nobility that represent the people to sit as judges in cases concerning the law and its prosecution. And together, they make up the Old Testament Supreme Court, as we read about in Deuteronomy 17, which was known as the Sanhedrin. So this group of officers is a full board of representatives of the highest covenant authority and temple worship. They are a distinguished and intimidating lot, to say the least. And yet, for all their shiny badges, this group has not been very favorably disposed towards Jesus. So far in the book of Mark, these officers have charged our Lord with blasphemy for forgiving sins. They rebuked him for eating with sinners. They scorned him for casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, as they accused. They also complained that Jesus and his disciples violated the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands. These authorities have posted all the bad Yelp reviews on Jesus. But it's more serious yet. In chapters 8 and 10, when Jesus forecasted his death in Jerusalem, he named those who would arrest and reject him as the priest, the scribes, and the elders. The agents of our Lord's death surround him in the temple. Jesus knows that he's looking in the eye the men who will soon put him to death. Indeed, just the previous day, after stopping worship, it was the priests and the scribes who began to actively plot how to destroy Jesus. Verse 18 of our chapter. Before these officials even say a word, Mark has shown us their motives. They approach Jesus as part of their dark scheme to murder him. Behind their legitimate question lurks a bloodthirsty lust. Though it is a fitting question that they put to him, and it's a two-parter. One, by what authority do you do these things? This inquires after Jesus' office. What's your authority? Do you act as a priest, as a prophet, or as the Messiah? In order to stop worship, as he did yesterday, Jesus must have an office. He needs credentials. And so they insist to know what office Jesus holds in order to do such things in the official realm of the temple. Secondly, they ask, who gave him this authority? Who deputized or made you their representative to act with their authority? This is the other option to the, que- the first question. For there's two ways you can have authority. One, you're the office bearer yourself, king, prophet, or priest. Two, you can be sent by the office bearer to be their representative emissary, apostle, or delegate. So the authorities put both before Jesus. What is your office, or who do you represent? They ask to see our Lord's credentials, which is proper. 
For in order to act officially and effectively within the jurisdiction of the temple, you need an office in accord with the law. Kings could hold the temple to account. Prophets prosecuted the covenant against temple corruption. And of course, priests had the authority to institute reforms. Jesus had to be an office bearer or a representative of one. And on this level, the authorities correctly express the principle of ordination, which is a truth of God's word, both Old Testament and New. The principle of ordination says that no one can assume authority to oneself. Authority is first and foremost not a voluntary act. Your desire to be an authority, to hold an office, is not determinative. Instead, authority rests on two things, the call or choice of God and the ratification of the covenant community. First, God must select you to be his officer. This is his call. Next, the church must confirm God's call by ordination. And we see this throughout scripture. If you, if you remember, Day of the Lord called David by anointing him with oil. But he had to wait many years in order to be king until the elders voted him in as king. In the priesthood, God's call came to you by virtue of your birth in the line of Aaron. But you were not officially a priest until they ordained you. Now, prophets were a bit different as the Lord commissioned them in the divine council. And yet, until the prophet's word was proved true before the public at large, that prophet may be true or may be false. Public approval still played a part. And in the New Testament, the Lord today still calls men internally into the ministry, but they have no office until the church calls them to be a pastor and the presbytery lays hands on them. This is the orderly and God-structured way to authority. There is no authority without the call of God and the office. Self-promotion has no place. As the book of Hebrews says, no one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God. So Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was made or was appointed by God. Therefore, the question posed by the authorities here is correct. Jesus is just some guy from Nazareth. He has no known connections to the offices of authority, and without authority, Jesus cannot legitimately or effectively act within the official and holy realm of the temple. And our Lord does need to answer this question. He has to have credentials. Nevertheless, even though this is a legit question, it's not fully valid, for it's not asked with sincerity. The force of their question is actually that he has no authority. The force is, how dare you? Their questions are rebukes for not having any authority. Additionally, their motive is to destroy Jesus. 
It doesn't matter how Jesus responds, for they've already made up their mind how to use his answer against him. You see, these are questions of self-incrimination. They are weaponized questions to ensnare Jesus in a plot to kill him. It is a dishonest and hostile to use whatever he says against him. They have no intention of bowing their knee to Jesus' authority. And it's for this reason that Jesus is free from giving them a full answer. Typically, when a legit authority questions you, you're obligated to answer. But if their questions are an evil entrapment, you have a right to self-defense, which Jesus exercises. He parries their sword thrust with his own question. I will ask you a question, and if you answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. In this way, Jesus takes control of the conversation. He doesn't fall in their trap, and he focuses on the real issue, namely their acceptance or rejection of him and his authority. Our Lord's wise retort reveals his competency, which is always a key ingredient in any office bearer. Though his question is one that might catch us off guard. The baptism of John, is it from heaven or from man? Answer me this. Now, by baptism here, Jesus is referring to the whole ministry of John. Since baptism was central to John's ministry, his whole office and work can be summed up in his baptism. Next, is his ministry from heaven or from man? Heaven clearly refers to God. That is, God ordained the ministry of John. He appointed John to the office and sent him forth. Being from heaven, John's baptism would carry the full authority of the Lord himself. And so, the complete demand to obey and submit to John's baptism would be enforced. If it was for man, however, then his baptism would barely rise to the level of human opinion. At best, pious advice. At worst, wicked manipulation. That which hails from man is not inspired. It isn't infallible, and so there's no obligation to obey it. If John's baptism is from man, it can be disregarded with no consequences or culpability. But why John's baptism? How does John relate to Jesus' authority? Well, this is due to the nature of his ministry as the forerunner. By definition, John was preparatory. He was the pregame show, the appetizer. He went before the full show, the main dish. John performed his baptism to ready the people for the authority to come after him. John and the coming one after him are intimately connected. They cannot be separated. To refuse one is to reject the other. To accept one is to receive the other. Moreover, what did John say about the authority of the one coming after him? Who was the figure that followed John? Well, Isaiah said that the voice crying in the wilderness prepared the way 
for God. In Malachi, the Elijah figure came before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Lord God came after John's baptism as he baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit. And there is no higher authority than God. He is the supreme and sole authority and power in heaven and earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so by forcing the authorities to take a stand on John's authority, Jesus necessarily makes them take a position on his. They cannot make a choice on John and remain neutral on Jesus. In this way, Jesus forces the priest and the elders to show their true colors. Externally, they ask a legitimate question about Jesus' authority. To the public, they look responsible, fair, and proper. But inwardly, they're full of poison and venom. Their external respectability is a cloak for a murderous plot. And so our Lord moves the conversation to bring their dark deeds into the light. And it's effective. First up, the priests, scribes, and elders huddle. They discuss how to answer among themselves. Now, when you are asked a straightforward question, and then you huddle up quietly to confer with your teammates, this does not look good. It looks suspicious, to say the least. Next, Mark gives us a microphone into their huddle. If we say from heaven, he will rebuke us for not believing in John. From their own lips, the authorities admit to not believing in John. They try to get Jesus to condemn himself, but within their own huddle, they incriminate themselves. They rejected the forerunner, and therefore they will not accept the one coming after John. Well, they cannot admit this publicly, and so they consider option two. Shall we say from man? Now, this is their honest opinion of John. His ministry did not rise to the level of human opinion. To ignore him brought no consequences for the authorities, or so they thought. Yet it is fascinating that Mark cuts off their huddle whispering abruptly. He adds, as the narrator, that they were afraid of the people who held John to be a prophet. The effect of this is to show that their from-man suggestion is ridiculous to them. That is, in their private huddle, someone says, we could say from man, then they look at each other and chuckle. (laughs) Funny, no way. To admit the truth is so silly, they dismiss it right out of hand by the mere suggestion of it. Yet their fear for the public also discloses their own selfish lust for power. The authority's number one priority is about preserving their own authority. They will not share it or give it up to Jesus. They don't really care about the truth. It isn't about the true nature of Jesus' authority, but only keeping up the status quo of their being in power. Their arrogance is challenging Jesus Jesus is a blanket over their own insecurity. 
Well, Jesus has them in a catch-22. They cannot admit they're not believing in John, and they will not denounce John as being for man to weaken their position with the public. Either answer forces them to be truthful about themselves, which they cannot tolerate. Indeed, this is very telling about corrupt leadership, when the truth becomes so intolerable that only the lie will do. Nevertheless, the falsehood they select is an interesting one. We don't know. They plead ignorance. Oh, that John, he was a mysterious fellow. He was complex and challenging. Who could say if he was from heaven or from man? It's foolish to be hasty to judgment. So we are cautiously wise. We don't know about John. This is their brilliant comeback to plead ignorance. They hide their unbelief and rebellion by playing dumb. But this hardly works. For as authorities, as priests, scribes, and elders, it's their job to know about John's baptism. For authorities to be ignorant on what they must know reveals them as incompetent. And incompetency disqualifies them from office. A scribe that doesn't know Hebrew is not a scribe. A priest who's ignorant of the law will perish in his ignorance. As they assert ignorance, their incompetence is showing. In addition to their unbelief and disobedience, the priests, scribes, and elders disqualify themselves by their incompetence. Of course, their foolish quip hardly stumps our Lord. Their non-answer allows Jesus not to answer. I will not tell you by what authority I act. Their dishonesty leaves our Lord free from being obligated to answer them. Yet in this non-answer, Jesus actually points us to the source of his authority. Note he says, by what authority I act. He doesn't say who gave him authority. His is not a delegated authority, but it is his own coming from his own office and person. And this fits with the baptism of John, which was the precursor of God himself coming. The Lord come in the flesh was the coming one that John prepared the way for. Hence, what did Jesus say the day before as he tossed coins and stopped worship? He cited the promise of Isaiah in the first person saying, My house will be a house of prayer. My house can only be spoken by God, and Jesus takes it upon his own lips. What then is the authority of Jesus by which he condemned and stopped temple worship? His authority is that of the Lord of the temple. Jesus is not a servant in the house, but he is the owner and Lord of the house, God in the flesh. This is the office and authority of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sure, Jesus could have appealed to his office as Davidic Messiah. He could have pointed to him being a prophet or even a priest out of the order of Melchizedek. All of these offices properly belong to Jesus. But here he punches higher yet to being Lord of the temple. He echoes the Father's voice at his baptism 
and at the transfiguration when the voice said, this is my beloved son. Jesus has a legitimate and authoritative office. And why is this important? It is because it means his work for you was effective. If his office was invalid, if his authority was not kosher, then Jesus' work would be no good. But with this true office and authority, Jesus' work for you is powerful, official, and effective to the uttermost. Indeed, here, he is condemning the temple and stopping its sacrificial worship by replacing it with his own death. He ended sacrifice by his atoning death on the cross. He closed the temple to open up his international house of prayer of the new covenant. By the authority of the Father and by his own authority, Jesus is the author and finisher of your redemption. His blood shed for you, his righteousness in your place, his effective intercession bears the sign and seal of heaven for you, his very resurrection. Therefore, the authority of Christ calls us to submit, to bend the knee in faith and devotion, to embrace the truth of Christ and not rebel as did the priest. To reject Christ is not to dismiss man, but God himself. To refuse the authoritative gospel in unbelief comes with eternally binding consequences. And yet, the authority of Christ in his work doesn't just psalmonize our call to faith, but it also imparts a joyful assurance to you. Jesus' death for your salvation was an official act of heaven. It cannot be undone, thwarted, or stopped. As surely as Christ died and rose for you, he will bring you to glory. The authority of Christ is your warm blanket of confidence and assurance amid the doubts and uncertainties of life. He acted for you, he saved you, and it's sealed and certified by heaven itself. Thus praise the Lord for the sure and effective authority of Christ to make us his own, to take away all our sins, to give us the sure hope of the resurrection, and to come on that final day to judge the world and to bring us the glory. May he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray.